0: For those who weren't here last week, last week I began a two-part series on Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is basically a, a letter written to a small faith community over in and around Rome. And it was written around 60 to 70 AD. And it was written uh, to a group, a faith community, made up a lot like the people here. And in most churches, it, there are three subgroups that make up that faith community. There are people who are all in with Jesus. They've been intellectually, um, uh, they've been intellectually instructed about Jesus, so they grasp who Jesus is as Messiah from the Scriptures. But their hearts have also been transformed. They've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and they're all in with Jesus. Doesn't mean they're perfect. It just means they're loyal ultimately to Him, and and they may struggle, but they're going to keep coming back to Him. And then there's a second group of people. This group of people are intellectually bought in. They have the understanding of who Jesus is, that He came, He fulfills Scriptures. They've even temporarily left the Jewish sacrificial system. But they're not all in with it. They're made up of apostates, people like Judas, people who walked right beside Jesus and yet ultimately deserted him, and that's the second group and then there's a third group who's trying to figure it out with well, the the letter to the Hebrews is basically uh, five warnings to the groups two and three now the warnings apply to group one but group one is all in they've been regenerate they can't be snatched away according to the very words of our savior once you're in his hands and you've been regenerated into his family it's you persevere ultimately But groups 2 and 3, they're in danger because they've heard the message, they've tasted it, they've not embraced it, and there's a difference between that. They've lived vicariously through other people's faith, but they themselves have never really possessed it at a heart level. In fact, it never made the transfer from the head down to the heart. Because ultimately what we believe is the core of who we are. And what we believe ultimately is played out in how we live our life. So you can say... You believe something, but ultimately it's what you do that shows what you truly believe. And, and so the writer writes this series of, of teachings, and then he gives warnings. And the overall theme of, of Hebrews, if you don't remember anything else about it, it's Jesus is supreme to everything. He's supreme to every religious, spiritual, materialistic, whatever system you want to imagine. He's supreme to it all. And that's what the writer's trying to tell this group of people, to encourage them. They are not uh, firsthand hearers. Most of them did not know Jesus. In fact, I doubt any of them saw or walked with Jesus. But they were ministered to by people who had seen him. And it was passed down. So what was happening when the persecution was coming from the Romans and even their own countrymen, the Jews, they started to falter a little bit. And so he writes this letter to tell them Jesus is supreme. He's supreme to Moses. He's supreme to Abraham. He's supreme to the angels. He's supreme to the Old Testament, uh, the old covenant. He's supreme to the sacrificial system. He's supreme to everything. And and so he gives them five warnings. The first one's in chapter two. And the first warning is this: Don't drift away from the message. Don't drift away. Because, because nobody really embraces it and has a heart change after the first exposure to the message of Jesus. So he says, don't drift. Keep coming back to the message. Keep listening. Maybe it'll sink in. That's the first warning, chapter 2. Chapter 3, he says, don't harden your heart. And he quotes from Psalm 95, which was a reference back to Exodus, I think chapter 17 and, and, and forward, where the children of Israel kept hardening their hearts. They saw what God did, but they would still want to go back to Egypt, even though they saw all these miracles. Man, we would have been better off back in Egypt. Oh, if we could only go back there and eat the fish. We're tired of eating this bread. They just kept complaining. You ever do that with God? You see God provide for you. You see how he cares for you. And you get in the middle of a tight spot and your first instinct is to, I want to go back to the pagan land. I want to go back to the land of works. I want to go back to the land where I can be in control. I don't want to walk by faith. I want to walk by sight. And, and so he gives them this second warning in chapter 3. He says, don't harden your heart. Keep your heart tender toward me in the message. Third warning is in chapter 5 and 6. And he says, don't waver. Don't go back and forth between the the old works system. Because see, the, the original system that God put in place was never meant to be works. The old covenant was by faith. In the same way the new one was. But it had gotten corrupted by the Jewish people. And so they actually believed because they were chosen, they could work and put boundaries around everything and keep God's word in such a way that would make them acceptable. It was never meant to be that way. And he says, don't waver between these two. It made me think of Elijah back in Second uh, Kings where he says, don't go limping back and forth between Baal and God. For us, it's don't go limping back and forth between the world system and living by sight and living by faith in God. And then in chapter 10, he gets into the fourth warning. And we didn't look at that last week. I, I alluded to it a little bit. But in chapter 10, verses 26, uh, really through the end of chapter, but specifically 26 and 27, he gives the fourth warning. And he says, don't be an apostate. Don't be an apostate. An apostate defined by um, what the scripture says. In fact, I think we have it, if, Zach, if you can put it up in 1026 26 It says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He says, don't be an apostate. If you go on sinning, A pattern of unrepentant, willful sin. This is not a temporary setback. This is not a a falter, a reactive sin where you, in a moment of weakness, give in. This is a pattern of unrepentant rebellion against the Most High God. And it doesn't matter if it's only one little aspect of your heart. You can't give God 90% of your heart. You can't give Him 95%. You can't give Him 99% of your heart. He wants the whole thing. He wants to tear down your sin nature, your self-centered nature, your self-led nature, and He wants to replace it with His heart. And then grow it in you. Doesn't mean you're perfect again. It's not about perfection. It's about the direction of your life. And that's what He's saying. And He's saying don't be an apostate. If you look at the life of Judas, Judas looked just like all the others. Nobody knew who he was. Nobody knew he was an apostate except for Jesus. And so people who are apostate can look like the real thing. The problem is they never last. They always fall away. And 1 John 2.19 tells why they went away. It says they went away because they were never really part of us. That's why they went away. 1 John 3 says, if you keep on sinning deliberately, you can't have the Spirit of God in you. And it doesn't mean, again, these temporary falterings. It means a willful pattern of unrepentant sin. And you say, I don't care. I know this is wrong, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to presume upon God's grace. It's happening a lot in our country today. In fact, there's a whole movement teaching that. You can just trust Jesus and then you don't have to worry about it. You can live your own life any way you want to. In fact, one pastor said, Jesus didn't come to tell you what to do. He doesn't care what you do. He just wants to be your friend. Now, I'm, I don't think his intentions were bad, but what people hear is all I got to do is pray a prayer, and I'm in. All I got to do is get baptized, and I'm in. All I got to do is get dunked, whatever, and I'm in. And he gives a fourth warning there. He says, Don't be an apostate. And then the fifth warning, is chapter 12, he ultimately just says, Don't deny him, because that's what an apostate is. My wife and I went to see a movie last night um, called Infidel. And the movie is about Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ, as is is an American businessman over in the Middle East. He gets drawn over there and he speaks. And basically he's arrested because he makes a proclamation that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And when he makes that proclamation in Cairo, that doesn't go well. They don't like that over there because they're a land full of Muslims. And that's blasphemy to them. And there's a scene in the movie where his life is put at risk. And all he has to do is renounce Jesus and he can be free. And Richard, you know John Monger, you've met John Monger. This church helped provide a vehicle for a guy who for 18 months... Stayed in prison and they said, you can walk out the jail if all you do is renounce Christ and he wouldn't do it. Why? He says, I can't. Because I believe that it's true. How can I deny the one who died for me? And so. When you think about our faith, let me ask you a question. Where are you following Jesus or following God in such a way that it requires faith and not sight. I want you to think about that question for a second. Where are you following him in such a way? How are you following him? How do others around me view my faith in Jesus Christ? Because when you're standing in front of a firing squad or in front of a guy who's going to behead you because you pronounce Jesus, it's very obvious where your faith is. But for us, we walk around in America, do people even know we're people of faith and the one true living God? Who am I trusting? Who do I really trust in for life? In chapter 11... The writer goes from warnings 1, 2, 3, and 4. And he goes into this history of faith. He, he defines it. He gives a character of it in, in verses 1 through 3. And then he starts with all the way back in the garden with Abel. Or out of the garden. Just outside of the garden with Abel. But he goes all the way back to Abel. And he starts unfolding different aspects of the faith. He, under, he, he basically instructs us on who... The author of our faith is. We can't manufacture it. So if you're sitting out there and you're going, I'm just going to be more of a faithful person, you can't do that. You can't muscle through faith. You can't figure out how you're going to do it. You have to call on Him to do it. But see, I think that's the prayer that Jesus talks about when He says, ask and it will be given to you. Knock and the door will be opened. He wants us to have faith. But we can't do it on our own. We have to go to Him and say, God, give me more faith. Like the guy who wanted Jesus to heal his child and he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Give me more faith. Is that something we even ask God for? Or we just ask Him to fix the problem? Give me the faith to walk through this, Father. Help me walk through whatever situation I'm in. So we see the author of our faith. He reveals also the motivation for our faith. He reveals the demonstration of our faith in this text today, 1-16. through 16, And he reveals even the journey of our faith with a man named Abraham. And so what I'd like to do is read verses 1-16 through 16 of Hebrews 11 and then go back and kind of unpack each one of these. The author of our faith, the motivation for our faith, the demonstration of our faith, and then the journey itself of our faith. How, how it starts and where it's supposed to ultimately end. So starting in verse 1, join me in reading. It will be on the screen, or if you have a copy of the Scriptures, I would love for you to look there. It says in verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. This is one thing about faith, that even though we die, our faith lives on. Isn't that wild? We're still talking about Abel. Thousands of years after he's been off the planet because of his faith. By faith, it says in verse 5, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. promise but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland if they had been thinking of that land that they had gone out of they would have had opportunity to return but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore god is not ashamed to be called their god For he has prepared for them a city. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, in the first few verses, he goes all the way back to creation because he wants these listeners to understand these people who are struggling, who are an apostate. He wants them to know it's not too late, but he also wants them to know how it starts, where it comes from. It doesn't come from us. There's nothing we can do to, to make it happen. So he goes all the way back to creation. And if you look at what he says, he says that faith, first of all, it gives a character. It's the assurance of things hoped for. Now, he's not talking about hoping for a nice car in your driveway there. He's not talking about hoping for, you know, the big paycheck to come through. He's speaking specifically of eternity and our souls. Because no matter who you are, as you walk around day to day, we all carry around the penalty of death because of our sin nature, apart from Jesus Christ. It's the most important thing we deal with. Stephen Jobs was one of the most wealthy men in the country, in the world. He he created Apple. And at the end of his life... He died from cancer and he says, the one thing that money can't buy is life. But real life is given to us in Jesus. For eternity. We were created for relationship. And he starts by going all the way back to creation here. And he, he tells him: listen, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. So again, I go back to the question, in your life, what is it that you're doing where you're looking for things that aren't seen? The things that you hope for. He defines the character of our faith. He says I, he created the universe, the seen out of the unseen. I was talking to somebody the other day and they, I don't believe in God. Well, you just think we all got here. You just think we just magically appeared? You wouldn't think that's about my watch or about this phone. Nobody would even ascribe to something as this as complex as this that we it just happened. But yet the universe is so complex that if we rotated just a little bit faster, we wouldn't be able to move. A little bit less, and we'd be floating out in space. There's 42 million nerve endings in your eye, but it just happened. It tells us how it happened. It says God spoke and it happened. He spoke. And he says, by faith, 26 times in this text, not just 16, but the whole chapter, 26 times by faith. The word faith is pistis in Greek. It means a belief that produces an action. It's not just a mental intellectual assent. It's a belief that produces an action in your life. And when he says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, he's taking these readers back to Genesis chapter 4. And we're not going to read the whole section of it, but I want to just read the first part of it where you hear it from God's word, what he says about the author of our faith. He says in verse 1, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of God, the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. And right there, you start to see a distinction between Cain and Abel. Cain... Cain was a possessor. Abel was a steward. Abel kept what God created. Cain was going to create his own stuff, working the ground. It says he was a worker. You see, you can't work your way into God's presence. You can't do anything except to receive it from Him as a gift. He gives us that as a stewardship. Our faith itself is a stewardship. And and when you go through, you get more of an understanding as he goes on to say, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. That word there is the earth. He, He brought to him what the earth had to offer. But what did Abel bring? The earth didn't produce a lamb or an animal. God made the animal. And it gives us more insight. See, the other thing is in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. It says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no atonement. There can be no forgiveness of sin. So God had already prescribed a way to worship and sacrifice him that Cain disregarded, but Abel was following. So from the very beginning, faith is demonstrated in obedience. And so the author of our faith is saying, I'm giving you this opportunity to show that you love me. Now, this wasn't the first sacrifice. The first sacrifice was in the garden. Because when Adam and Eve committed sin, guess what? God took an animal skin and put over them. And apparently God had wanted to prescribe the death of an animal to his people so that they would understand sin always has a cost. It always produces death. And Abel followed that. Now listen, I grew up in a rural area. We had gardens and we grew crops. I never heard anybody say, man, look look at God's garden out there. I never heard anybody say, look at God's tomatoes. You know what they say? Look at my tomatoes. Look at my corn. Look at my wheat. Look at my stuff. Why? Because when you get out there, you have to work hard in those gardens. To do that stuff. And Cain brought that to the Lord thinking, I've worked hard. I'm going to bring, look at that good stuff. I'm going to bring it going against what God himself had commanded. And we see God reveals our faith. He's the author of it. It's God revealed, not man created or man earned. Second, he goes into the next story of a guy named Enoch. Going back to Hebrews, it says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, what's interesting about that statement there is if you go back to Genesis 5, where you Genesis 5 is one of those laundry list of names in the Old Testament where it goes and so and so was this old and he had this child and then he lived this many years and then he died. And this guy, he lived this many years and then he died. And another guy lived this many years and then he died. And then you get to Enoch. And it says Enoch lived 65 years and he had a son named Methuselah. You've heard the name Methuselah. You're as old as Methuselah. We, we, that's where that came from. Methuselah is the oldest known recorded man in history. 969 years. Enoch was his father. But it says after Methuselah, it says Enoch walked with God. And, if you, in the, and there's a Greek translation of the Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament called the Septuagint. And that phrase, he walked with God, is the exact same Greek phrase that's in Hebrews 11 that says he pleased God. So walking with God is what pleases God. It's the same thing. And walking with God is intimacy with God. It's not just knowing about him. It's knowing him. There's a lot of people in churches all over the world that know about Jesus and know about God, but they don't know him. That's where Matthew Matthew 7, says, depart for I never knew you. We, We didn't know each other. And the know there is the same know like a husband knows his wife in sexual intimacy. It's an intimacy with God that only comes through walking with him. And Enoch walked with him and God took him. Now, the interesting thing about Enoch is he had a son named Methuselah, who lived 969. When uh, Methuselah was 187 years old, he had a son named Lamech. When Lamech was 182 years old, he had a son named Noah. And, And Noah, when he was about 500, had a son named Shem, another one named Japheth, and another named Ham. Now, until I studied this passage, and listen, I've been reading the Bible. i probably read through it 30, 40 times my entire life. Read through many, many times these genealogies. I've never really thought about the, the progression of faith through generations. But Methuselah was trained because, by his dad, who was Enoch. And guess who was alive when Enoch and Methuselah was alive? Adam. Adam. The very first person to walk with God. And Methuselah lived 969 years, which takes him right up to the very time, the very year that the flood destroyed the earth. And what's interesting about that is, as Enoch built into Methuselah, Methuselah built into Lamech, then they all built into Noah, Noah, and they all built into Shem, Ham and Japheth. And then the flood happened. And then at the flood, after that, it was just Noah and his wife and their kids, Shem, Ham and Japheth. And pretty soon Noah died. But guess who had the benefit of Methuselah? Lamech, even Adam speaking into their life, Shem. Who spoke into Abraham and Isaac's life. We have what we have here. Because God. Mercifully. Conveyed all that story down through people of faith. And he called people of faith. To continue to perpetuate the story. The question is. Will it still be here. 20 years from now. We're the people of faith. We we are so moved to walk by sight. And listen, it's not easy. It's not easy. And that's why God wants to demonstrate faith to the pagan world around us. And that's where He goes with Noah. You see, this writer takes us from the author of our faith to the motivation of our faith. And then he comes into the demonstration of our faith in the life of Noah down in verse seven. He says, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And he says, by this, he condemned the world. He condemned the world. How did he condemn them? Because what do you think was happening while Noah was building the ark? What are you doing? I'm building a big boat. Why are you doing that? It's huge. There's never been a boat like that. Why are you building that? Well, God's going to destroy the world. You need to repent. What? He's going to destroy the world with water. You need to repent. Yeah, right. And they would laugh at him. Ridicule him. I don't believe that. You're crazy. You're out of your mind. You're a nut. People call Amy Coney Barrett a nut because she believes in God. I heard people say it yesterday after she was nominated. Talking about what a nut she is. Noah was called a nut too. He was called crazy. But you know who was there with him? Methuselah. It's okay, Noah. God's faithful. God's faithful, Noah. He's faithful and he preached. He demonstrated. And it says this about Noah. He walked with God. He was intimate with God. And the way that intimacy was demonstrated to the world around him, it says, Noah did all God commanded. Wouldn't wouldn't you like people to say that about you? I would. Doug did all God commanded. No, you know, Doug walked with God. I would love that. That's what faith is. It's walking and doing what the Almighty God says. Well, how do you know what God commands if you don't know this? 90% of the men in one survey in America read this less than one hour a year. How in the world are you going to grasp what God wants you to do, how He wants you to live, how He wants you to interact with Him when you don't know His Word? And Tim, really, even if you can't memorize it, If you're trying, aren't you honoring him? I know a lot of people that say, well, I've tried and I can't memorize it, so I just don't try. Really? Really? He says in Deuteronomy, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. How do you know what the book of the law is if you don't get into it? And and, and so you see and able... You see in Enoch, you see in Noah, men who walked with God. And I guarantee you, the, the what they had, those men didn't have a written form like we had. They had oral, but I guarantee you, they sat around and they talked about it a lot. Because that's how we got what we have today. And then he... By the way, the word Methuselah, I forgot this. The name Methuselah means a man let go or a man who is a weapon, a man who brings judgment. And isn't it interesting that the year he died was the year of the flood? And then we see in verses 8 through 16, the journey of our faith with Abraham. It says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called. That's the first step. The journey of our faith is being called, first of all. It says he was called. But it wasn't because God goes, Man, look at that guy. He's so great, I'm gonna call him. It's not because he, he goes, I know that guy's gonna be one great guy, so I'm gonna pick him. It just picked Abraham out of his sovereignty. That's why each one of us should spend every day on our knees thanking God for picking us if we're his. We didn't go to God because we're special. He didn't pick us because we're special. We're special because he picked us. He called Abraham. He lived over near Babylon in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. And he picked him and said, go to a place that... You don't know. And that's what it says. He called him out to a place and he says he went to live in the land of promises in a foreign land. If you go back to Genesis and read what it says about him in Genesis 11 and 12, it says he didn't even know where he was going. Does God ever ask you to go to a place you don't know where you're going? That's me. Sixteen years ago, Man, I was enjoying life with my wife. We had three biological kids. and he said, oh, how about that adoption thing, Doug? I, I think you and Lori need to adopt. What? What about retirement, man? What about going down to the Caribbean with my wife? What about going on trips with her? If we adopt now, I'm going to be in my 60s and I'm going to have kids in school. I'll be a parent for over 40 years. God, if I do that, I... Doug, trust me. Okay, God. We adopted one. And he says, I want you to adopt another. Then he says, I want you to adopt a child that's uh, dying. Then he says, I want you to adopt a child with a Down syndrome. Then another one with Down syndrome. I didn't have the money to do any of that. Lori and I didn't have any money to adopt. Every adoption was over $30,000. We didn't have it. We didn't know how we were going to care for them. People in my own family, you're crazy. What are you doing? You can't take care of those kids. You're in ministry. I mean, you, you, how are you going to go do what God wants you to do? And I said, well, what if God wants me to do this? And he affirmed it every time. Do you know how many times in scripture he talks about the orphan and the widow? And he says, Doug. I want you to put God on display to the pagans around you. I'm not saying he's calling everybody to do that. He's calling everybody to at least help out with the orphans. But he called us to adopt it. And let me tell you, it is not fun. You know what I was doing it this morning? I was cleaning up my bathroom, my, my daughter's bathroom, because even though she's 15 years old, she can't go. She has, she has issues. She can't take care of herself. And I'm sitting there thinking, Man. How long is this going to happen? You ever feel that way? See, God calls us to places that we don't know even how we're going to possess the strength to get through them. But he says, trust me. Just keep coming back to me. Believe that I love you and believe that I have a plan for you and I'm going to use you to put myself on display to the pagan world around. And that's what he did with Noah and with Abraham. You see, Abraham was loyal to God here. He wasn't only called, he was tested. Think about what he did. He goes into Egypt and he lies. He fails the first test. He needs to trust God, but he doesn't. He lies about Sarah because he's afraid. It doesn't mean we're perfect. And you see that through all his examples. We're going to be tested. But then we see his power revealed when he took a guy who was 100 years old and a lady who was 90 years old and he says, you're going to have more children and descendants than the stars in the sky and the sea of the sand on the seashore. And they did. Not because of what they did, because it was impossible. And who gets the glory for that? Look at how many Jews are in the world today. How many Israelites? It's crazy that God did that. So we're called, we're tested. We see his power demonstrated. And then we ultimately see his purpose in verse 16. He says, Because of these things, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And he's known as what? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Because his purpose is to reveal a people of the one true living God. The question is are you one of those people? Am I one of those people? Does my life demonstrate to the world around me that I'm one of those people? As we close, I want to just go back to our mission. Because this is ultimately the good news about Jesus. Zach, if you could put that slide on about our mission. Because... God created you and me for a relationship and a partnership with Him. One where we, we, we wake up in the morning and we realize we're not our own. We're His. He created us to partner with Him to put Him on display in the world in which we live. But because of our selfishness and our self-ledness, that relationship was broken. And we have a self-led nature from the time we're born. Nobody's good. Nobody's righteous. Nobody seeks God. And the Bible says that God in His mercy sent Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago to demonstrate a life of what it looked like to be God's person. What it looked like in the flesh to live out a life, to put God on display to a pagan world. And He did. And He said, I'm going to die on a cross And I'm going to pay for all of your selfish sins. And I'm going to pay for all of your self-ledness. I'm going to pay for everything that separates you from God. And unlike Cain, you can be like Abel and you can accept the right sacrifice, which is me, and place your faith in me as a person. Not just in what I do, but who I am. And he says, by doing that, in faith, which he talks about and we've been studying about, that means it's a faith that produces an action in my life. He says the Holy Spirit will come into us. It will change us from the inside out. And we will be conformed to the image of Christ. And we will start putting God on display. Imperfectly, but we will put Him on display. And we will be known as His people. And the Bible says, He says, listen and obey. Why do we obey? To put Him on display. And then He says, We put him on display by being a kingdom of priests to a hurting and marginalized world. And boy, is our world hurting? And is it marginalized right now? And he says, where are my people? So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. And I want you to think about these questions one more time. Who am I following? How am I following? Am I following by sight or am I following by faith? And am I all in? Pray with me. Lord God, thank you so much for your word and the reminder that you have called us to be a people of faith. And Father, if there's anyone here who has never given you their whole heart, I pray that today would be the day they release whatever part of themselves they've not given. And they would say, I'm all in with you, Jesus. I'm all in with you, God. Holy Spirit, come. Take me. I want to be. Yours. And I want to put you on display. Just tell him that in your own words. And maybe you're his and you've not been living a life of faith. Maybe you're like Peter, you've denied him in the way you've lived your life because of fear, because of just frustration or hurt. Just own that today and tell him, Lord, I have not been a person of faith, I've been controlling. I've been living by sight, but today, Lord, help me to start living a life of faith to show you to the world around. Lord, hear these prayers. And may we serve you and may people refer to us as your people, people of the most high, people of the one true living God. Amen.